we want to begin today because today is a special day in the calendar of the church. Um, and so if you didn't grow up in church or, or if you grew up in certain traditions, um, you know Christmas and you know Easter. Um, and then there's just a whole bunch of other days that are thrown in, right? Um, but today is the day of Pentecost. Um, Pentecost is a day that we don't always think about, but Pentecost is uh, really the birthday of the church. It's the day when we celebrate that the Holy Spirit came to the disciples, enabling them to, to reach everyone, but as a deeper history than that. Because Pentecost is actually a celebration um, that we inherit from, from the Jewish faith. Um, see, in the Old Testament at times, they celebrated what was called uh, um, Shavuot. And Shavuot, or, or Pentecost in Greek, um, they celebrate this time, the time of, of bringing in harvest. Um, but it was the time they celebrate where, where the nation uh, and the people of Israel, they were waiting at the bottom of Mount Sinai, waiting for Moses to return with the Ten Commandments. And so if you can put, themselves, put yourselves in, in their shoes and, and what they were thinking, they, they were asking, how do we live now in light of what God has done? Because God ha- has rescued our people. God has brought us out of slavery. God has liberated us. And he's moving us toward our own land. He's moving us toward being our own people. And, and the question was, since we're no longer free, we've been told what to do our entire lives. Now that we're free, how do we live? How do we live in such a manner that shows that we are the people of God? And so that's what, that's what the Ten Commandments, that's what the Torah was. And so as Moses comes down from the mountain, he has the commandments, that has the Torah, and he says that this is how we live. If we are to be the people of God and we're going to show the nations, everyone, what God is like and what his people are like, this is how we live. And we can boil everything down in the Ten Commandments, really the two huge commandments. And it's loving God and it's, it's loving others. And so they, they celebrate within Pentecost this remembrance that God laid out who they should be in the world, people that love God and people that love others. And so just as, as the Hebrew people, they were waiting and, and, under, and asking the question, how do we live in light, light of what has happened and what, in light of what God has done? We fast forward to Pentecost in the book of Acts. And so we have Jesus' disciples after his resurrection that they're in Jerusalem and Jesus has told them, hey, I'm going to be sending a gift to you that's going to enable you to, to be bold, but hold on, just stay in Jerusalem. And so they're in Jerusalem at the Feast of Pentecost and, and they're gathered together in a room wondering what's next. And much like the Israelites, they had this question, how do we live in light of what's happened? In light of the death and resurrection of Jesus, and in light of Jesus telling us to stay in Jerusalem until this happens, how do we live? And again, the answer came on Pentecost. And we see in the beginning of of Acts that the Holy Spirit descended on them and and empowered them to speak and tell the story and speak the gospel boldly. It was inclusive of all people. It broke down barriers. It wasn't just for one people. So, so, these, pe- so this, these people who were followers of Jesus, where it had been one type of people, now they're empowered to speak to every single type of person that was there. Language was no longer a barrier. That whoever was there, whoever was there to hear the story, was able to hear the story uh, of God's love for them because language wasn't an issue because the Holy Spirit empowered them to speak to everyone. Not only was that 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 national ethnic barrier erased. You see, when Peter starts to preach, he quotes the prophet Joel, and he, he mentions all these other barriers that are broken down. 
that sons and daughters are going to dream dreams that happens across gender. It happens across age as the young and old proclaim the mysteries of God. It, it breaks down class barriers as it lifts up servants who speak about God. You see, in Pentecost, what was happening was, was the church with this capital C was, was being born, and it wasn't just one type of people. It was all people. It wasn't just for one type of people. It was for all people. And so as they were asking, how do we live in light of what has happened, the answer was, go forth, share what's happened with everyone, that everyone is invited in to this. There are no barriers. And so we... we have been talking about 1 Corinthians and, and this letter that was written to, to these early believers in a church that Paul had started. And the same question is the one that they're asking that was asked at the foot of Mount Sinai, at the, at the foot, or in that room in Jerusalem on Pentecost. The question is, how do I live in light of what God has done? You see, God has formed this church. He's brought together people from all backgrounds, and they're sitting here, well, here are people who are different. We have different ideas. We have different ways of doing things. How are we supposed to be a people, and how are we actually supposed to live together in light of God bringing us together in light of what he's done? And so Paul writes back, and he answers, and and to over things that we've talked about and some of the things we didn't have time to talk about. We, we've seen how, how they deal with issues of divisions and, and teaming up, um, following different leaders within the church. We've talked about um, how sexual morality, was a, or sexual morality was a hallmark of the church. They should flee from immorality because it sets them apart from, from culture. We talked about idols and the connection to the community, how it wasn't so much about just this, this thing, this idol, but it was what story are we telling the people in our community? How do we worship together with respect for each other? How do we use our gifts and our talents for each other to build up the church, always having an eye on, on the hope of the resurrection? You see, throughout all of this common thread, what we want to do is maybe pull out, pull out some handles for us to take as we put, it, put kind of a cap on, on 1 Corinthians and see where we've been, and see where we go from this. Um, what do we take with us? What's this one message that we can take with us? And so if you will, if you'll, I'm going to read through kind of an, an overview. We're going to skip through Corinthians and, and hopefully get one cohesive message out of this and see what we can glean from Corinthians. So at the very beginning, the first two verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it says this, Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to the sanctified in Christ, in Christ Jesus, and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. You see at the very beginning what he's doing is he's tying, tying the life of these believers in Corinth to the life of believers and followers of Jesus everywhere. He's saying, listen, yes, this is for you, those of you who, who, um, who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. They're called to be his holy people, but you're bound together with those everywhere who call on the name of Jesus. This is something larger than just you. This is something, this is something worldwide that's going on. We jump over to 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31, and, and he's speaking about how we live. So how, whatever you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Now, you might have seen that verse on, on a youth camp t-shirt or um, possibly a coffee mug. But this is in the context of people asking, how do we actually live? What does this mean? How do I live amongst neighbors who may or may not follow Jesus? 
What does it mean to live in every moment to the glory of God? He continues on toward the end of the letter in, verse, uh, in chapter 16, verse 13 and 14. It says, be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous and strong and do everything in love. See, this theme that he talks about to the Corinthians is not, it's not just what he has for that one church. It's for all believers, all followers everywhere and saying these things. It, it, these same things are echoed as he's written to other churches. Look over to Ephesians 4. Um, and he says it this way in the beginning of Ephesians 4. It says, As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you, live a life worthy of the calling you have received. In other words, do everything for the glory of God. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. For there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of us all who is over and through all and in all. And so here, going back to that, that verse in chapter 16, we see it, it how do we live in light of what God has done? It says simply, stand firm in the faith and do everything with love. You see two aspects of this. So what does it mean to live, to live in light of what God has done in Jesus? It's it's simply as we live a life that displays the gospel. This gospel that, that God through Jesus is setting everything right. That he's repairing our relationship with God. This, this, this relationship was broken because sin where we turned aside from God and said, you know what, God, I want the ability to determine good and bad for myself. I want to be the center of my own universe. I want everything to be bent toward me. I don't need you. In that moment that Jesus on the cross, he repairs, in his resurrection, he repairs that relationship. He repairs the relationship with other people. With, he repairs that relationship with creation and repairs that relationship with ourself. And so as we celebrate Pentecost today, we, we have to understand that with the coming of the Holy Spirit in each one of us, there's actually the, the power of God to move within us to live a life that's not about us to live a life that, that actually is one of healing and wholeness that we experience between ourselves and God. Yes, as we experience forgiveness and we experience restoration, but actually empowers us to be that force of healing and wholeness in our community. So we begin to see these other relationships become, being healed. So we live a life that displays this good news, this, this gospel. And in the, in, in the second letter that Paul writes, um, to the Corinthians, he actually says it this way. He says, listen, if anyone's in Christ, they are a new creation. The old's gone. The new has come. Something new is happening in those that are following Jesus and, and trust in him. And if that's true, if we are a new creation, if something's happening through the power of God within us, then our lives should bear that out. Then we should live in such a way there should be something different about our lives. And, and that's something that's hard in our culture, honestly. Because faith in Christianity is so interwoven just in the general air that we breathe within um, our part of this country and even just the general, the general West. Um, it, it's hard to say, well, well, what does that mean? If I have a life that's empowered by the gospel, how is that any different than, well, just being a good person? And we find that in 1 Corinthians as well. In 1 Corinthians 10, 33, it says this, for... 
We see the example of Paul. It says, for I'm not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. So the first thing is we see a life that demonstrates the gospel. The first thing we see that, that it's a life that is others-focused. It's a life that's not bent on ourselves. It's a life that is actually considers other people. As we've seen throughout Corinthians, Paul's answer to all of these issues that people have brought up. It's kind of funny as you track through, and yes, he's talking about different things. He talks about sexual morality. He's talking about food, sacrifice to idols. or talking about exercising gifts in the church. But in all of these things, Paul actually brings it back and says, hold on a second. You want to talk about an issue. I want to talk about people. Because that issue of, of food sacrificed for idols, this isn't some abstract theological issue. This is about what you do and how it affects those around you. How does it affect those around you that, that believe in these idols? How does it affect those around you um, who, who are looking to you to how they might live? When they talked about sexual morality, it's not just, well, here's this abstract concept of what this morality is. It's understanding how this affects other people and the relationships between people. When it's even talking about the order in worship, it's not, well, here is this liturgy you must follow in order to actually commune with God. It's how do we conduct ourselves as we're worshiping God, to actually facilitate people's connection with God? How do we conduct ourselves with them when we worship God so as not to distract other people and make that worship really more about ourselves? When we come together in the Lord's Supper, is it about us communing together and us remembering what Christ has done, or is it time for me to fill my belly and kind of show how much better off I am than other people? You see, he says if we wanted to live a life that's that displays the gospel, it's a life that isn't focused on ourselves, but a life that says, all right, I am going to consider others. The other thing we understand is, so we live a life that is others-focused. We also live a life that is an invitation. So if we want to live a life that, that's, that tells the story of the gospel, it's one that, yes, we, we consider others, we look out at others, but the way we live is actually an invitation into the family of God. It's if we have experienced wholeness, if we have experienced restoration, then it is extending that invitation to other people. To see, I see brokenness in my world, I see brokenness in people around me, and I, I want you to know that, that in this Jesus that there is wholeness. Now, there's not always comfort, there's not always an easy life, but there is wholeness that comes through following this Jesus. And so our desire for others to know the wholeness that's found in Jesus, this life that's found in Jesus, to be part of the kingdom of God, working toward reconciliation. To let other people know that there is a place for them in the kingdom of God. This has been reserved for them because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. There's a purpose for them within this kingdom of God as we start to see wholeness and, and, and healing reign within ourselves, within our relationships, within our communities. We live a life that's inviting to say, here is the story of Jesus, but this is also the story of you. You can be part of this. You can be part of what Jesus is doing. You can experience this for yourself. You can experience life transformation and experience world transformation through this Jesus.
So we live a life, this other's focus, we live a life, this an invitation, and then as Paul already said explicitly, that we do all things for the glory of God. Which sounds great and churchy um, to say, hey, how are you doing? I'm like, I'm doing everything for the glory of God. Turn in your time card for your paycheck. No, I'm doing it for the glory of God. Sweat in the church is 81 degrees. Doing it for the glory of God. So what does that mean? What does that mean to actually do things for the glory of God? I mean, all things. Like, like, that's a pretty wide circle to say all things for the glory of God. I mean, that doesn't exclude anything. That means every little minuscule thing about your life, how you live, can be done for the glory of God. All right, so let, let's, let's play this out a little bit because um, now we didn't have coffee in the foyer because it's 80 degrees in here and, and nobody's drinking coffee today. All right, but I love drinking coffee. All right, it's part of my everyday when Kirsten and I both work from home. We go through two pots of coffee in a morning um, and so once we switch to half-calf because otherwise we'd be bouncing off the walls. All right. So let's just take that. So how do you actually drink coffee to the glory of God? All right? Because you can. There's a way to drink coffee that is not for the glory of God. But how do we drink coffee for the glory of God? The, the, the first thing is, is, how do I drink it? Am I taking more for myself? I'm looking at my portion. When it's, it, am I making sure because I get up a little earlier than my wife, um, do I have the pot on auto drip, it's set, and do I drink it all before she wakes up? When I'm, in, when I'm in the office and I take the last little bit, do I sneak away and leave it on the, on the burner um, and not make more for other folks? Do I make sure that I'm getting my coffee but not care about what's happening for other people around me? Or I'm only concerned with my portion and getting mine. Because see, if it's just about me, I'm not to the glory of God. But even in that, if I'm making sure there's enough for others, if I'm making sure that other people can't partake in the beauty that is coffee this morning, then I'm doing that for the glory of God because I'm honoring the image of God in other people because I'm caring about them. So it has to do with portions. Am I taking more for myself? Am I focused on myself as I drink? I understand, does, does my enjoyment of coffee, does it hurt other people? Listen, coffee is one of the worst um, agricultural products for forced labor in the world. Does that thought cross my mind when, when I drink coffee in the morning? Am I going to put my enjoyment, my need for caffeine, over the freedom of someone else? Or do I make sure that those who have grown and picked and roasted my coffee all throughout that chain have been ethically treated so that I'm participating in the life-giving force of work through me drinking coffee, not participating in the crippling power of slavery. See, that's how we drink coffee to the glory of God. Am I putting my enjoyment over the needs of someone else or over the welfare of someone else? Another thing is, um, as I drink coffee, who am I inviting to have coffee with me? If this is just about me and my need for caffeine, then that might not be moving the needle for God's glory, but who am I inviting to have coffee with me? How, how am I living my life as an invitation? 
Because listen, drinking coffee can be a very social thing. So who am I inviting? You know, how, how am I expanding my table of the people with whom I drink coffee across the table from? Who am I welcoming in to my circle and to my life over coffee? You know, am I using this opportunity to, to get together to drink coffee to, to expand my understanding of people, to expand my love of people? Am I, am I welcoming the refugee, the, the immigrant, those of different ethnicities or cultures or races? Am I actually forging real relationships with people over coffee? See, coffee isn't just throwing some water through some dirt and drinking it. Because it can be done for the glory of God. how am I drinking that? Am I doing this to give God glory? Am I doing this where, where I recognize the image of God in others? Am I doing this in a way that actually tells the story of Jesus? So we do all things for the glory of God. Now the second, the second part of this, we started out saying, listen, it says, Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. Be strong. Let's tell the story of, of the gospel and everything we do. The second half of this, the second thing that, that Paul tacks on throughout this entire letter. We went through this the very first day we talked about 1 Corinthians. We said all of this comes under the umbrella of the law of love. That all of this happens, and all of this happens with respect to love. That, that Paul didn't insert a Hallmark card to love in the middle of a scathing letter to people who are fractured apart. He said, no, this is the benchmark by which you measure everything, is how we love. And so the basis of the gospel-centered life, the basis of this life is love. And we've spent a lot of time on this, and, um, and I thought about how to talk about this all week in a way that was new, in a way that wasn't just, hey, Rob's saying the same thing every single week. Um, and, and I wrote some things down, and I went through some things, but then yesterday um, I heard um, Bishop Michael Curry's words. And um, honestly, I couldn't say it better than that. And, and you, might have, you might scoff at all the, the pageantry and the ostentatiousness of just this media circus um, surrounding a royal wedding, and you might not be wrong, um, but don't underestimate the fact that millions of people tuned in yesterday to see a spectacle, and they heard a sermon on the love of God for the first time. And so, it, if it's good enough for those millions of people to be introduced to the love of God, I think it's good enough for us to, to, um, to hear and understand what a life rooted in love looks like. And so, um, I'm going to close tonight. I'm not going to read this whole sermon. It's 15 minutes long. Um, and all people said amen right there. But I, I do want to close with, with an excerpt of that. As we understand what this life that's rooted in love looks like. So Bishop Michael Curry. By the way, Winston-Salem, North Carolina represent, right? This is what he says. As someone once said that Jesus began the most revolutionary movement in human history. A movement grounded in the unconditional love of God for the world and a movement mandating people to live and love, and in so doing, to change not only their lives, but the very life of the world itself. And I'm talking about some power, like real power, power to change the world. See, he died to save us all. 
He didn't die for anything he could get out of it. Jesus did not get an honorary doctorate for dying. He didn't. He, he wasn't getting anything out of it. He gave up his life. He sacrificed his life for others, for the good of the other, for the well-being of the world, for us. That is what love is. Love is not selfish and self-centered. Love is sacrificial. And in doing so, love becomes redemptive. And that way of unselfish, sacrificial, redemptive love changes lives. And it can change the world. If you don't believe me, just stop and, and think and imagine. Think and imagine a world where love is the way. Imagine our homes and families when love is the way. Imagine neighborhoods and communities where love is the way. Imagine governments and nations where love is the way. Imagine businesses and commerce when love is the way. Imagine this tired old world when love is the way. For when love is the way, unselfish, sacrificial, redemptive love, when love is the way, then no child will go to bed hungry in this world ever again. When love is the way, we will let justice roll down like a mighty stream and righteousness like an ever-flowing brook. When love is the way, poverty will become history. When love is the way, the earth will become a sanctuary. When love is the way, we will lay down our swords and shields down by the riverside and study war no more. When love is the way, there's plenty of good room. Plenty of good room for all God's children. Because when love is the way, we actually treat each other, well, like we were actually family. When love is the way, we know that God is the source of us all. And we are brothers and sisters, children of God, brothers and sisters. And that's a new heaven, a new earth, a new world, and a new human family. It's when everything, when we live a life that speaks and cries the good news of Jesus. That invites, that invites people in because love is the way of this kingdom. That in everything we might be rooted in this love, unselfish, sacrificial love. That we might do all of this for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father God, we want to thank you that that you show us love. God, we want to thank you that, that not in self-interest, but out of pure love for us, that you, you came to us, you walked beside us, understood what it's like to be human, that, that you took sin upon yourself, that, that you died for our forgiveness, that you rose again to, to bring hope and new life to us. God, I pray that we recognize that that life is a life of love. That it's love for you that animates us. That it's love for others that compels us. That in everything, we tell your story of love. That we might see your kingdom come. That we might see this kingdom of love reign in our hearts in our church, in our community, and in our world. Because you were most glorified when we reflect you in everything we do. And we know from Scripture that you are love. 
So God, for us, where there, is place that is, there are places that are not love within our hearts, within our thoughts, help us to expel those, to repent of those, to lament of those, to seek forgiveness for those places. Where we see places where there is not love in our community, let us speak love in those places that we might be peacemakers. That this world might know love because they know us. And that we recognize this only true because we know you. In your name we pray.